Well, we are in week four of our Real Change series. And a friend of mine in my life group is a cardiologist, and he told me he loves the artwork that our team put together for this series, especially the fact that we used a real heart. But we did also talk about this uh, EKG up here, and he said as he reads it, that person is in trouble. Well, that's actually by design because we are trying to take an honest look in our hearts. And when we do, we see there's lots of ways we have trouble. We've already talked about fear and comparison and selfishness. And if any of us takes an honest look in our heart or our soul, I believe that we would come to the conclusion that all is not well with my soul. I know firsthand what it's like to give the impression on the outside that everything is great, while on the inside there is turmoil and even chaos. Many of you know my story. It was during my junior year of college on the night that I was elected student body president at the University of Nebraska here in Lincoln. We had this huge party and hundreds of people gathered together and we were all just waiting for the call with anticipation. And when it came, the place just erupted in celebration. And of course, I too smiled and celebrated. But within minutes... I found myself slipping outside all alone. And I will never forget thinking, is this it? And I stood out there looking up at the stars and I thought to myself, if there's no more joy, even in the moment of victory, what hope for life is there? And I went home that night and I wrote down these words. Just when I got everything I thought I always wanted, I realized I didn't want it anyway. What I wanted was what I thought it would bring. Because I thought accomplishing great things would somehow bring lasting happiness and satisfaction to my soul. But no matter what I accomplished. It always fell short of accomplishing that. It came to a head for me during my senior year of college. And as a part of my role, I was also a part of the University of Nebraska Board of Regents. And as a result, when the football team won uh, the conference championship, we got to go with the official party and um, all of the team down to Miami Beach for a week. And so we're down there at the bowl game, and then on New Year's Eve, I got completely drunk. I took a swing at my best friends, and I went on what I intended to be a one-way swim out into the Atlantic Ocean at 2 a.m. And in the darkness of night and in the depth of water, I literally screamed out to God to deliver me to come to me, to, to come and meet me in the turmoil of my soul and rescue me. And shortly after, through his love and goodness, God began to rearrange the circumstances and the relationships in my life 
to start a new direction. Because what if we actually could have a heart at rest? What if we could actually experience an other than sort of life that no matter what's going on around us, we didn't live with turmoil and chaos within? I believe that is God's desire for every one of us. And now for nearly 35 years, I have been on a journey to discover how to go from being a person whose soul was governed by chaos to increasingly becoming a person who has a heart at rest. How do we do that? That's what I'd like us to talk about together this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm 23. Now, this is one of the most familiar psalms and passages in all of Scripture. It is most often read at funerals. And there's a reason. Because there is something incredibly powerful in its poetry that that brings comfort to our soul when we're going through the most difficult of times, even in the face of death. A death of a one who is so close and so near. But I believe there is more to the words of Psalm 23 than simply comforting prose. I believe that this psalm is made up of life-transforming truth. Here's the problem. I think that this is one of the most known passages and least applied passages in all of Scripture. I'm hoping to change that beginning with us right now this morning. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. The psalm begins with and is built upon, and I would actually argue the entirety of our life is built upon five important words. The Lord is my shepherd. First, the name of the Lord that is used here is the name that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness when he asked, who are you? It is Yahweh. It is I am that I am. It is a picture of a God that is eternally self-existent. And it is a picture of God that is limitly self-sufficient. A God who needs nothing and possesses everything. But it's also a picture of of a relational God who longs to draw near to his people, which is exactly what he was doing in the Exodus and what he was telling Moses. And he is a covenant-keeping God who longs for intimate relationship with the people that he has created. He is the Lord. The Lord is As David writes this, he's not thinking of something in the past or the future. It's a present reality. The same is true for you and I as we read this psalm. You see, God didn't just do incredible things back then for someone else. We're not just sitting here waiting for someday when God will do incredible things again. I believe that God literally wants to change every one of our lives every day. The Lord is my It's a personal psalm. It's not about somebody else out there. It's not about all these other things and thoughts or what's happening in the world. It is deeply intimate. This is you and God 
on the most intimate of levels. The Lord is my shepherd. This psalm is written by King David. But let us not forget that David's entire upbringing and formation was as a shepherd. And David looks through that lens and he uses that illustration as one who intimately understands the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep and the care a shepherd brings to his flock. And he uses that illustration to demonstrate the care of God for us as his people. And it is incredible. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. The first part of the psalm, it's this picture of abundant provision. Anybody who's been to Israel or even seen pictures knows that this is not actually a green and lush place. It is dry and arid and barren. But David, as a skillful shepherd, he would have known exactly how to take the sheep that he cared for and bring them to those places where they might experience abundance and flourishing, where they might find green pasture and not rushing torrent dangerous waters, but still calm waters. And here in safety and abundance and peace, those sheep can bed down. And not only that, but this is a picture of an abundance for a sheep. There would be no better buffet in the world. They can eat and they can feed and they can be full and they can be satisfied because the good shepherd has brought them to green pastures and still waters. And then he says, the Lord restores my soul. You can literally translate this, revives my life. You know, there are a number of people in our church who are master craftsmen. And they have an ability that others of us do not. They have this ability to look at something, something that you and I might see as old, broken, rusted. We might just see it as a piece of junk that needs to be hauled to the curb and and go to the dump. But a master craftsman has the ability to not see only what is, but to see what could be. If he will take the time to do the loving labor, and with patience and skillful hands, a master craftsman takes that old piece of junk and begins a beautiful work of restoration. All because he has a vision of what it can be when it is restored to its original design and intent. And when they are finished, it is something of beauty and value. My friends, our God is the master craftsman. He is the God of restoration. When the world looks at you and I and says, there's nothing there. They're broken. Their lives are broken. They're they're full of sin and shame and they've been beaten and and they, they really just need to be discarded and pushed to the side. God sees something more. God never sees you just as you are today. He always sees you as you can be. 
as you partner with him, if you'll partner with him, and allow him to do this beautiful work of restoration. And he will, with great love and patience and care and his skill, begin to shape and mold your heart and your life to bring out the original intent and design, and it will be a thing of beauty and great value for all the world to enjoy. That's the work our God wants to do. So this first part is this picture of abundance. But I skipped something, something really important. I want to camp on verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Other translations say, I lack nothing. If the Lord is my shepherd, I want for nothing, I lack nothing. That is an incredible statement. Here's the question. Is it true? Is it merely beautiful, comforting poetry? Or is it a statement of reality because of life under our shepherd? Well, I believe that this is a statement of truth. That if the Lord is my shepherd, I can actually experience a life without lack. But how? I mean, let's be honest. I want for things all the time. There are so many times when I feel I lack so many things in my life. So what in the world does it really mean? I believe that what Psalm 23.1 is speaking about is a concept called the sufficiency of God. It is you and I following a shepherd and understanding that in our life in Christ, God possesses all that we need to satisfy the deepest desires of our soul. And we may be looking for life in all kinds of places, but the place that it is actually found is in him. And I want to just highlight that by taking a step back and talking about what I would call the outer life versus the inner life. You see, I would contend that most people spend the vast majority of their life, their time, their energy, their resources on this and this rather than cultivating this. You see, there are two manifestations of the outer life. This represents performance management. It is us focused on how we look and what we do as we live relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing the applause of people. We so long for people to say we're worthwhile, that we're valuable, that we matter or our contribution matters. So we'll spend so much time and energy trying to look the right way, be the right way, act the right way, do the right thing. Find some arena or some lane where we can be great where we can perform. And the essence of our value comes down to an equation. Our worth equals our performance plus other people's opinions. Problem is, it's a very, very shaky way to live. There are many things that affect your performance. Some days you perform well, some days you don't. Some arenas you perform well, other ways you don't. Some days you look good, some days you don't. And we have almost no control of what someone else actually thinks of us. 
When we live focused on performance management, the outcome for us is not good. It is turmoil in our soul. And if we're successful at performance management, what's the result? It's pride. And if we fail, what's the result? It's shame. Neither of those are good for your soul. And there's a second manifestation of the outer life. I call it circumstance management. I believe that many of us spend much of our time and energy doing everything that we can to arrange the circumstances of life to make sure things go well for us. We literally want to control the world, or if we can't do that, at least our little world, to try to avoid suffering and hardship and difficulty and pain as much as we possibly can. That becomes the focus of our life to protect ourselves and to somehow try and find happiness through good circumstances. I think there's actually a Christian version of this as well. I would call it God management. It's where the focus of our spiritual life actually becomes on trying to get God to control all of the circumstances in the world, or at least all of the circumstances in our world, to make sure that we don't face suffering or difficulty or hardship or pain. And we go through our Christian life just beseeching God in one situation after another. Oh, please, God, deliver me from this. Oh, please, God, protect me. Oh, please, God, provide me. Oh, please, God, make my life happy and stable and calm and good but what's the outcome if we succeed it's a fear-driven spirituality it's control-driven prayer and it is self-focused outcomes it's not good for our soul and if we fail it's anger disillusionment discouragement Maybe even despair because we are convinced that God somehow let us down. But we forget one very important thing. God never promised to do that. Never. You see, both the Christian and the non-Christian live together in a fallen and a broken world. And we face difficulty and hardship and eventually every one of us and every person we know and love will face the ultimate difficulty of death itself. It is the inescapable reality in a fallen world. And God didn't promise that if you follow me as a Christian, I will deliver you and I will make all of your circumstances good. In fact, there's a promise from Jesus, but it sounds very different than that. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's the promise. You will have trouble in this world. So where's the hope? It's in the back half of Jesus' statement. You will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. So what does it mean? Wait, does that mean Jesus will then arrange all our circumstances so we don't have trouble? No, he just said you will have trouble. I believe it's speaking not of our outer reality, but of something deeper, an inner reality. It's the same thing the psalm speaks of. You see, in the outer world, our focus is on imposing our worth through performance management and imposing our will through circumstance management on the world. 
But in the inner life, there is a rooted and grounded life. An outer life is a house of cards. But an inner life can be a grounded and rooted life as we focus on three other things. First of all, an inner life and cultivating a heart at rest begins with building an identity in Christ. Who are you? It's not how you perform or what other people say. It's what God says about you. Your identity is grounded in the fact that you were created in the image of God. Every single one of you and every one of you was created by God on purpose for a purpose. And you are of infinite value and worth to God. That is the establishment and the basis for our identity. And if we want a heart at rest rather than a turbulent soul, we must begin to cultivate an inner life that builds our life on a foundation of the goodness of God and our identity in Christ. So the inner life is built on our identity in Christ. It's then empowered by sufficiency in Christ. This, I believe, is what I lack nothing means. It is understanding that God in and of himself is sufficient to meet every inner need of your soul. That literally God is so good and he is so for you and the provision of his resources is so limitless that he can and will, if we seek him and trust him for it, he can and will meet every need of our soul, no matter what we face in our world. And so the inner life and the cultivation of the inner life is built on a foundation of identity in Christ, but it is empowered as we, by the Spirit, seek to believe God and trust in his sufficiency as his provision for us, no matter what he chooses to allow in our world. And then the inner life is focused and it goes to a focus on hope in Christ, built on identity in Christ, empowered by the sufficiency of Christ and focused on the hope in Christ, which is forward and outward focused. You see, now we actually can be set free of us. Not needing to spend all of our time and energy obsessed over us, but free because we experience the sufficiency of Christ in such a way that we can move forward and we can focus outward and we can actually be used by God to bless and help and encourage others. When we have an identity that is founded in Christ, the outcome is security and freedom and humility and confidence. When we have a life that is empowered by the sufficiency of Christ, we experience inner peace and rest and transcendent power above our circumstance. And when we live with our hope fixed on Christ, then we're able to experience a life of meaning and purpose and direction, and we experience transcendent perspective in a world of turmoil. That's the difference between the outer life and the inner life. And I believe that's the difference between a life without lack and a life constantly wanting for and needing so much. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. How do I experience this abundance from God? It requires that I will adopt the posture of a follower. In order for the Lord to be my shepherd, I must be willing to follow him, to seek him and to follow him. 
Friends, one very important thing for us to understand. God will absolutely never force himself upon you. He will never force himself upon anyone. He will always give you a choice. You can choose to live a self-directed life, doing your thing and going your way, or you can choose to hear his call, his invitation to life of following the shepherd. And here's what happens when we do. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When we follow the Lord as shepherd, he promises to guide us and to guide us in the paths of righteousness. And this could actually be translated the right path. And do you know what that means? If you follow the Lord as your shepherd, you have a promise that he will absolutely never lead you astray. Never. Not once. Ever in your life. If you will adopt the posture of a follower and follow the Lord as your shepherd, he will not lead you astray. Now, we may go astray, but he will not lead you astray. Why? Well, it gives the reason right in the verse. When Cincy and I were first married, my parents got a new car, and they generously offered to give us their old car, which was awesome, so kind of them. But there was one small problem. You see, that old car was my mom's baby, and my mom took incredible care of her car. I mean, immaculate care. And me, at that point in my journey, not so much. So I was actually concerned that if I accepted this car, that it might end up being a problem. So I talked to my mom and I said, Mom, this is so kind and generous of you, but I'm, I'm a little nervous because I don't think I can take care of this car in the way that you would take care of this car. And I know how much it means to you. And I'm concerned you're going to actually be upset and frustrated with me at the end of the day. And she said, oh, well, once it's no longer mine, I don't care how you treat it. I was absolutely shocked. But what I realized is that while that car was hers, her name was on it. And she was committed to being the kind of person who takes really good care of that which is hers. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, his name is on you. And there is no one more committed to taking absolutely great care of that which is his than Jesus. He is committed to you, to providing for you, to caring for you, and to guiding you. Why? For his name's sake. God will not allow anything in your life that is not ultimately for your good and his glory. That's his plan. That's his desire. For the sake of his name, because you are his, he will guide you in right paths. And man, that verse is so important to understand because as we get to the next one, the whole story takes a dramatic turn. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So right on the heels of that, where does the path lead? 
It leads into a very difficult place, right into the shadow of death. The imagery is like you fell down a mine shaft and you are in utter darkness and you are absolutely terrified. This is a hard place to be. God doesn't say, I won't lead you to the valley of the shadow of death. So what is the hope in that? Many of you have probably seen the Pixar movie Inside Out. It's a great movie which depicts the you know, complicated interplay of human emotions through the life of a little girl, Riley, and her parents. And as we watch, we see joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust all jumping up to take charge at various moments in time. But when you watch that movie, did you happen to notice that the inner scene is almost always a scene of chaos. The reason is because we need something far greater than our emotions to anchor to as we go through the difficulty and the storms of life. We need a transcendent good, a transcendent power, a transcendent person to be our hope. Did you notice the state of the psalmist as he's in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now that's a weapon and a tool. You see, the rod was a small club and an expert shepherd could take that thing and he could wing it and he would take out a predator that was coming for one of his sheep. And oh, how thankful I am that sometimes God, man, he takes that club and he wings it and he takes out those predators that are coming for me. But more often than not, the shepherd didn't use the rod. He used the staff all the time, every day. And that staff was long with the hook on it. And what it was for is that he might gently and lovingly hook that sheep and bring it back to himself and to others in the flock. Because the power to have a transformed soul and a heart at rest isn't found in all of our circumstances changing. It is actually found in the presence of God. Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is my good, is my strength. And so this shepherd lovingly keeps drawing us back to him and also to each other. And wow, the outcome is extraordinary. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. When I read that verse, there is an image that just pops in my head. It's a picture of a massive battle scene. And there are bullets that are just whizzing by. And there are bombs that are just blowing up. And there is carnage everywhere. And I'm like, Lord, get me out of here. And instead, my heavenly father gently takes me by the hand right into the middle of the mess. And he sets up a table. And he unfurls a tablecloth. And he puts out the linen and the china. And he invites me to sit down. And he anoints my head with oil, which was a symbol of comfort and refreshment and honor. And he fills my cup. He fills it to overflowing. And then he sits down 
with me. And right while the battle is raging in the midst of the mess, he and I feast with peace and dine together in this extravagant banquet prepared just for me. That is an incredible picture of the goodness of God and what he desires in each of our stories. And the psalm comes to this beautiful crescendo in verse six. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I have traveled all over the world uh, working with our global ministries. And when you're traveling as much as I do, things happen. And there have been four times that I have been involved in attempted robberies overseas. Now, that's not me attempting to rob other people. That's, that's people trying to rob me. And two of those times were successful. And two of those times were thwarted through incredible stories including one time in Africa when my wife basically instantly became Wonder Woman right before my eyes. But that's an incredible story for another day. But you know, something's happened to me as a result of those incidents. When I travel overseas, I kind of find that I'm often looking over my shoulder. I'm wondering who's coming after me. Who's out to get me? And I find that I'm a lot more wary than I used to be. In fact, sometimes in certain contexts overseas, I can just be a little bit jumpy. And the reason is, when you've taken some hits, it gets your attention and you start to wonder who's behind you. Every single one of us has taken hit after hit after hit. And we're wary. We're, we're jumpy. We go through life looking over our shoulder, just wondering what's going to happen next. But if we adopt the posture of a follower of the Lord who is our shepherd, what does the psalm say? It says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Which means as I follow Jesus and I look over my shoulder, what's behind me? It's goodness. It's God's love. It's God's kindness. Psalm 139 puts it so beautifully. It says, you hem me in behind and before. God before me, God behind me. The psalmist erupts in praise. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is our good, good God. I hear uh, our, our uh, law enforcement, military, and security guys talking about the idea of who has your six. And that's this question because the six is your blind spot. It's right behind you. Who's got your back? I can tell you unreservedly who has your six. He has your six. And as you seek and follow him, he promises goodness and loving kindness, his very presence to be with you, which is how the psalm ends. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At Easter, Josh talked about the tabernacle and the temple, this place where God dwelled, where the people would come together to be in the presence of God and just how important that was. You and I in Christ, what an extraordinary privilege that we have. 
We don't have to go to a place, and it's not just once in a while that we can be in God's presence. We literally can dwell in the presence of God anywhere, any moment of any day, in any place. We are never more than one choice in our heart from turning Godward and experiencing the comfort, the encouragement, the strength, the wisdom, the guidance of God And that's what he longs for in relationship with us, is that every moment of every day, we would learn to cultivate a life of dwelling in his presence, both today and forever. That's what God offers. It's the truth of Psalm 23. But it's a choice. You see, and it's a choice on a a big picture level because every person on earth has to choose whether they will follow Jesus Christ or follow themselves. Whether they will accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or reject Him. But most of the people in the room here today have chosen to say, I'm in, I'm a Christian. But for those of us who are Christians, the choice didn't end. The choice and the opportunity exists every moment of every day. Will you live trusting in yourself? Will you live going your own way, doing your own thing, or will you, in dependence and humility, look to the Lord who is your shepherd? I want to ask my son David to come up here for a minute as we seek to highlight the contrast between those two things. When you came in, you got a handout, and inside that handout are a number of Bible verses that are all about the goodness and the sufficiency of God. And I really want to encourage you this, this week, this summer, take time. Dwell and meditate on these verses. They are truth that can transform your life. On the front of the handout is Psalm 23. It's a reminder of what we've been talking about. But on the back, I've written another psalm. You see, Psalm 23 is a psalm of David, but we could call it a psalm of the Spirit because it's inspired by the Spirit. Well, I wrote Psalm 23, me. It's not a psalm of the Spirit. It's a psalm of the self. Listen to the contrast. I am captain of my soul and king of my life. I am ravenous to be filled. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I rush to find, possess, and consume all that I can for me. I live for the adrenaline of the rushing rapids of life. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. I neglect and destroy my soul. I choose to continually pursue what I think is best for me, for the sake of my own comfort, pleasure, and fame. No one tells me what to do. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name. I use every resource that I have and take from others to avoid every ounce of pain, difficulty, trouble, or suffering. But still, I'm terrified. And in the silence of night, I feel utterly alone. All my striving and self-serving, they fail to bring me peace. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I give endless energy to accumulating for me. I build physical and emotional fortresses to keep out every possible enemy. I want to live with a crown on my head, king of the world, or at least my little world. But my cup just keeps leaking and so often is empty. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I constantly look over my shoulder, fearing attack, just waiting for the next shoe to drop as I protect myself every day. And I fear I will be trapped in the chaos of me forever. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks, David. Either there is a God, and I get to live as a recipient of his limitless love and secure in the provision of his infinite capacity, or I have only the resources of me. And if it's on me to hold the universe together, to muster up all of the courage and all of the strength and wisdom, love, hope, and capacity needed, I'm in deep trouble because I often lack what is needed just for me, let alone everyone else. Thus, many of us, we go through life fighting with all that we are and all that we have just to survive in a dog-eat-dog world. And true sufficiency True strength, which is the possession of adequate resources to handle whatever this broken world throws at us, that's out of our grasp. And true goodness and true love, the ability to genuinely love and give to others, well, that's beyond our capacity. And we talk about being world changers who pour out love and goodness on others, but most of the time we are simply trying to stay afloat, grasping anything to hold on in Arctic cold waters while the myth of an unshakable life goes down like the supposedly unsinkable Titanic and we try to just not drown. But if there really is an all-sufficient genuinely extravagantly good God who has made a way to call us to himself as his very own sons and daughters and promise his very self and all of the resources of heaven as our provision, then that changes everything. So there's only one question for us this morning. Is Psalm 23 true? And if it is, am I actually living like that? Believing, trusting, banking upon its truth as the source of life for my soul. If we could take an EKG of your soul, how would it look? Is there a lot of chaos? Or are you living with a heart at rest? Well, I am personally learning that choosing to seek and depend upon the infinite, sufficient resources of Christ moment by moment every day, that is my personal pacemaker. 
to enable me to transcend the circumstances of this world and have a heart that is governed by rest rather than chaos. You see, I actually can lack nothing because of the infinite resources of heaven. And that is transcendent power for life. And may that be what we all experience. May you live a life without lack, cultivating a heart at rest because the Lord is your shepherd. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are such a good, good God. Thank you, Father, that you invite us into your presence and that simply in you, you yourself are all of the resources sufficient to bring satisfaction, rest, peace, and even overflowing joy and love to our soul. May we stop looking for it everywhere else. And may we adopt the posture of followers of the Lord who is our shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before I sit down, I want to just ask you to imagine for just a moment that you are an incredibly successful real estate developer with waterfront properties in a prime city location. And you're a committed Christian and life is great. But then, tragically, your four-year-old son dies. A year later, there's a fire in your city, the worst in its history, and most of your property burns to the ground. All of it uninsured. It's a massive financial hit. In the wake of those things, you decide, I need to take my family on a vacation. Let's go to England. You decide to make it a missions trip because one of the world's foremost evangelists will be speaking over there. So you make the plan and you're ready to go, but at the last minute, something comes up in your business. Your family's going to have to go on ahead and you'll catch up as soon as you can. And they board a ship to head to England. And they end up in the worst naval disaster that had ever occurred. Their ship going down in 12 minutes. Hundreds and hundreds of people die. You hear the news of the accident. You know nothing about your family. And then the next day, you get a message. It's from your wife. And she's alive. Praise God. But all four of your daughters have drowned going down with the ship. What would be the state of your soul? What would be your thoughts about God? Your view of life? How would we possibly become a kind of person who even in the middle of such grief and tragedy could have a heart at rest? You know, it's actually possible because all of that actually happened. To a man by the name of Horatio Spafford in 1873, and he boarded the next ship to go to England to be with his grieving wife, and I can't imagine what that journey was like, the wrestling with God, the grieving in his soul, but when they came to that place in the water where the ship went down and took his daughters, 
Horatio Spafford in that spot penned the words of one of the most powerful hymns of our faith. Here's what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. So oh.